Today on When Fear Reigns, Dr. Parlow and Pastor Ben continue their discussion of the most challenging teachings found in the New Testament with five ideas by Jesus. All right, we're going to take a little bit of a, a shift here. We've talked about some of the New Testament passages that have really been a challenge, but I want to spend some time, uh, we're going to do our five through one um, passages on especially the words of Jesus, make sure we're not not losing out on some of the challenging things he says. So I'd like to first take us to this really interesting passage where Jesus talks about the cost of following him. Uh, somebody came up to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replies, yeah, but I don't have anywhere to lay my head. This is, uh, I'm reading from Matthew chapter eight, but this is in a couple of the gospels. And Jesus responded, or uh, the man responded, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. That seems pretty harsh, right? A okay. man who wants to grieve his father, who wants to do the ritual, ritually right thing to do. And Jesus says, forget it. Yeah, not at all like what, uh, you know, the Instagram Jesus today. Hipster <laughs> Jesus or kind to everyone. Yeah, yeah. Really nice. No, yeah. it's, it's very likely this man may have wanted to fulfill the duty that often the oldest sons were given. That was to bury the dead. Usually they did that in the very same day, mm-hmm. bury their dad. Um, well, before uh, embalming, you don't want that body sticking yeah, around no, too long. No. <laughs> and, and he had to do that probably in order to, to obtain his inheritance or maybe wanted to re- remain close to his dad for a while because then uh, later on they, they rebury the bones. I think of an mm-hmm. ossuary, I think that, okay. that was called. It was a practice that the Jews had in Jesus' day. In, in any event, um, Jesus makes it clear that he, he's, he wants his request, this request would be putting traditions of men ahead of serving Jesus. And that's really the mm-hmm. crux of all of this. Mm-hmm. The, qu- the key question here is, who's the dead? What does the dead refer yeah, to? Yeah, yeah. Uh, let the dead bury their dead. The dead is usually used in, in two different senses in, in scriptures. It, it's kind of a paradox and it's used very effectively here. Um, the Jews often use the word dead uh, to express kind of an indifference toward uh, toward a thing or to express that something has no influence over them. It's, you're dead to oh, me. Oh, sure. You're dead yeah, to me, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, to be dead to the law, uh, it says in Romans 7, or to be dead to sin, mm-hmm. Romans Has six. no power over me. Has here, no power. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the idea. Has no power or control over me. Um, so, so people of the world are dead to Christ in that sense. They don't, mm-hmm. you know, they don't, they don't want anything to do with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't see his beauty. They don't hear his voice. Uh, that's why Jesus says, only, only my sheep will do the things that I, they hear my voice and do those things that I want them to do. Also, there's the spiritually dead. And the mm-hmm. physically dead. And, mm-hmm. and most commentators will tell you at this point, Jesus, knowing everything, likely this man's father was an unbeliever. Mm-hmm. So he said, let the spiritually dead mm-hmm. bury their spiritually dead. Mm-hmm. And the whole point here is, is not that Jesus doesn't want us to honor our parents. Right. He's got a lot right. of passages. <laughs> Ephesians 6 talks about honoring your parents, but ultimately Jesus comes first. You think of Peter and Andrew, James and John, Matthew, recognized the Lord and followed him at once. They left, right? The thing to which this man he just really wanted to bury his father, and yet Jesus is calling him to something of more importance than that earthly consideration. And for this time, Christ is asking him to do that sacrifice, and he's not willing to show that. And so Jesus does say, you know what? Let the dead bury mm-hmm. their dead. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing in this world is to be more important than our responding to the gospel. And that's that's the key. I think you have to understand that Jesus wants followers Right, not 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 just professors, right? Not not just because you know what's going on, mm-hmm. but those that are spiritually alive to be as instruments, to be the hands and feet of Jesus when He calls people to go out and share the gospel. So that's the idea that um, this guy was putting earthly things in front of spiritual things, and mm-hmm. it's really an object lesson here. 
But I think that dovetails really nicely with our number four passage from Luke chapter 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. I think there's a there's this dichotomy of Jesus is exclusive, right? And, and to try and balance and say, I love Jesus and all these other things. Jesus says that doesn't work. You can't, you know, going back to our last passage, you can't love your father and love that procedure and love that 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 requirement of you and follow Jesus. You can't love your family in terms of making them the highest priority and make Jesus. There's only one position at number one in your family. And he, and he uses a metaphor in Luke right after this that points this out after he says, you know, you got to hate your mother and father. Yeah. You know, yeah. And all of it. He then he talks about the man who builds a house without first counting the cost. It's mm-hmm. the idea that, mm-hmm. okay, think about what you're doing. Um, what's number one in your life? And, and uh, in order to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, it's you're willing to give up everything for Jesus. Uh, he requires that commitment, that that faithfulness. Even if our parents choose not to follow the mm-hmm. Lord, mm-hmm. Um, if and when you know you face those painful choices where you have loyalty between loyalty with your family, loyalty to Jesus, mm-hmm. I always pray that God would you'd want loyalty to Jesus to follow His call. I mean, I have something very true in my own family about this. When I decided to leave my pursuit of medicine and go to um, theology, I remember going home and telling my parents that. Yeah, and I was playing football as well, and it was it was a lot of fun. And I go to come back from college, and I say to my mom and dad, "I got something I want to tell you." And they they go, "Okay." And I say, "Well, I'm gonna leave school, and now I'm gonna go uh, go pursue being a pastor." And my mom goes, "Well, well, Johnny, if that's if that's <laughs> where you think the Lord's leading you, that's great." My dad looks at me, CEO of a company. Why do you want to do that? <laughs> Only he used other words. <laughs> he used a lot of other words. Yeah. He said, "Why do you want to do that?" And I said, "I, I just." I just feel that's what God wants me to do. Yeah. And that was great. And now they're my biggest fans in yeah, that sense. Yeah. But but it was that idea that there's that loyalty where you, you just sense God's calling. Or maybe it's in your life where it's like, my family believes this, but I believe what Jesus says. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. you know, they say, well, unless unless you renounce what you believe, you can't come into our house. Mm-hmm. Well, then you're, I guess you're not going to be in the house, right? <laughs> Uh, that's that's that idea, and as you mentioned before, in in this podcast and others, think of the people in China, mm-hmm. where they have mm-hmm. they they come to Christ, Jesus works faith in their yeah, heart. They get what disowned. happens? Yeah. They get disowned. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. People turn their backs. Don't even talk. to Happens them. in the Mormon Church too. Ever, yeah, yeah. yeah. ever. And so the idea that um, we prioritize Jesus is the number one relationship over any relationship with parents, mm-hmm. siblings, mm-hmm. and other family members. Now. Of course, Jesus wants us to love our parents and our yeah. siblings. He, yeah. he talks about in the fifth or the fourth commandment, honoring our father and our mother. That's important. And he, and he, want, he says, if you, Paul says, if you don't care for your children, your parents, your relatives, you're worse than an unbeliever. Yeah. So yeah. Th- this idea of hating your parents doesn't mean you can hate them because they won't give you TV dinners <laughs> all the time or whatever you want to eat or right. cake right. or the latest video game. It's it's the idea that it's priority again. What's your top priority? I wonder if you would weigh in on this, because I wonder if there's a cultural shift here. Um, do not hate father or mother, Jesus says, wife, children, brothers, sisters. I wonder if it's in our time, it's even, maybe maybe it's enough to say it's as challenging, if not more challenging, to prioritize Jesus over your own children. I think of all kinds of families that oh, won't say absolutely. anything about their kids moving in with their significant other or you know, my son is gay and, you know, all these kinds of things that parents have a really hard time saying Jesus is the most important. And I'm saying this as a parent, as I look at my son, knowing that in 15 years, I have no idea what, what things are going to look like. Um, th- that's a huge challenge in our culture, I think. 
Yeah, any time. It could be an idol. Yeah. It's, it's my children are my life. And that's why a lot of times you will see a divorce occur when the youngest child moves out yeah. of the house because the parents haven't spent time uh, cultivating their marriage relationship. They mm-hmm. made the children the, yeah. the center of their altar of their family. Yeah. And they've worshiped those children. Yeah. And so if their children don't do well, somehow they think, oh, you know, uh, I've, I've failed or whatever. And mm-hmm. I understand that as a parent, but your children are not your God. And, yeah. and that's why the second pillar of our grow and go philosophy and vision here is what? Uh, we believe that children are best served when adults are spiritually well-fed. Yeah. We believe that we want to grow healthy adults. adults. Yep. That's the key because it should be this way in a marriage. You're sp- God first, yep. spouse, yep. kids, mm-hmm. work. Then the dog. Yeah, I mean, Unless we're talking to Lydia. Unless we're talking to Lydia. And <laughs> then it goes, God, the dogs. <laughs> oh, she loves the kids more than the dogs. Then the dogs. Then the, uh, whoa, 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 we're not getting hey, into uh... <laughs> Yeah. I hope she's not listening to this one. But no, well, that's that's I correct. Huge, I, I yeah. think that's huge in our culture. And it's not to say, I didn't mean to, my comment was not meant to be like, oh, when they turn 18, then it'll be challenged. Because I think sports are a huge challenge. Your kids get into a sport. What ha- I mean, how many families disappear from church for four months because it's baseball season and you're playing tournaments every His dad season. and mom are living through their kids. Yeah. And sports and are not, but that's a great temptation. Are, are you are you putting your kids and hoping that they get that D1 scholarship or they get fo- some sort of fulfillment from playing a sport? Are you putting that above Jesus? And I think that's a, every parent needs to constantly be assessing, why are we doing this? What? Are we putting God first in this? And, and what am I communicating to my son or daughter yep. when we go away on the weekend and then we don't have a family devotion when we miss mm-hmm. church or mm-hmm. we don't watch it online yeah. when we're in the hotel room waiting for yeah. another game to start, like yeah. an AAU basketball? Or it could be camping, it could be hunting, it could be all kinds of things. It could be any of that. Yeah. What are you communicating? Yeah. You're yeah. communicating that, well, that's really not that important, that this is more important yes. and you don't want to go down that road. Yeah. Yeah, because if you if you are struggling to put Jesus above father and mother and children, know that that's going to be a struggle for your kids too. If they didn't see that model, they're going to be picking up on those habits for sure. And and to the person who has to sometimes uh, I don't know receive persecution and ridicule from family members, yeah. I, I leave you with these words uh, in Mark chapter ten, where it says Jesus says, "No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel." will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecution, and in the age come eternal life. Uh, God blesses us one way or another. And I, I think that you want to understand, if you're aware of the persecution, please understand your Savior's Yeah, too. yeah. And he walks beside you in that. He blesses you through it, and he'll bring you through to the other end. All right, another cultural one, I think, that Jesus really challenges our thinking on. Uh, this is from Mark chapter 10. Uh, and really talks about, Jesus is talking about divorce here, and he says, uh, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman. Nope, I think you're skipping one. I know. I want to take I want to take that one last, that oh. Matthew 5.48. Okay, okay. So another cultural uh, challenge that Jesus gives uh, is from Mark chapter 10, where Jesus is talking about divorce, and he says, anyone who divorces his wife, marries another woman, commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. I don't know how many Christians I've met that are remarried. And is Jesus saying here that remarriage is, by definition, adultery? Poor translation. Oh, Again, okay. We're coming back to the original language. And yeah. uh, in Greek, you have a passive verb form. It really doesn't communicate very well in, in English. Okay. It would be better to translate this, um, causes her to be stigmatized okay. as 
an adulteress okay. or adulterizes her. I don't know if that's the word, <laughs> but I use the word stigmatize. You heard it here first, yeah. folks. Adulterizes yeah, the I verb. I can't spell it though, um, <laughs> but it's it's stigmatizes her. In other words, people are going to look and go, "Oh, she must be the adulteress when yeah. she's not, but she's she's soaked with the splash effect of someone else's sin, mm. and therefore her standing and her reputation is soiled. Mm. So it's the idea that if you just have people divorcing one another back and forth and back and forth, the, quote, innocent person in that divorce ends up looking like the guilty one. Mm. And that's the idea. So when you read that passage, I encourage our, encourage our, our listeners to say, it causes her to be stigmatized okay. as an adulteress or something. Yeah. So it really is a, it's an issue of reputation almost, right? For Correct. the other person. Correct. You're causing that person to be seen as... As guilty of a sin guilty. that someone else did yeah. and she's getting hit with the yeah. splash effect. Yeah. Or he is. Yeah. Innocent bystander, so right. to speak. Right. So there's been a couple of times, uh, John, where you have talked about poor translation or better word. How how does a person who maybe doesn't know the original languages of Hebrew in the Old Testament or Greek in the New Testament, how do they get to some of these words that maybe are translated poorly in English or they've got more depth or more meaning or other nuances. How do you get to that kind of thing? There's a couple of things I think every family should have in their library, every person should have in his or her library. One of those would be a, a Bible, a, a, a good translation. There's no perfect translation, and every translation has got its strong points and weaknesses. But let's just use the NIV, which is probably the most popular in the New International Version. Uh, understand you can get a, a study Bible that has some notes and commentary at the bottom that sometimes will call your attention to some of these words that are, are not being translated well. They're just being trans, they're translated in a way that's easy to read but may not be as sure. close to the, yeah. the Greek or the Hebrew. I also would encourage people to make use, uh, whether online or in paper form, of really good uh, Bible commentaries. The one I use from our church by the Wisconsin Senate is um, the People's Bible Commentaries. Uh, they're in paper book form, especially if you're like this new year, you're reading through a, a certain a book of the Bible, or you're going to read through a portion of the New Testament, whatever, to grab those from, if your church has a bookstore, buy from the bookstore. Yeah, if your yeah. church still has a library, which a lot of them don't, yeah. you can grab it from there. But if they have a bookstore, order it. Or uh, if you have a question to ask one of your pastors, that's that's a real key because uh, they have the language training and also the resources with which to uh, look up the answer to that question if they don't know the answer yeah, to that question yeah. and then give it to you. And then I often tell people, if someone asks you that question, tell them you don't know the answer, find the answer and then teach them that answer to yeah. that question and then yeah. you'll never forget it. But those are things I guess I would do uh, apart from learning Greek and Hebrew, which who wants that? Well, there might be some. Yeah, <laughs> You can do that now. I think there's an app for that. Yeah, there's probably, I know that uh, Duolingo has Hebrew and I think Greek now, but they're not the biblical languages, but might well, help you. Uh, you're help the you younger guy. There's probably some programs out there for your computer. Yeah, correct? there is. I mean, there, um, if you really want to dig into this uh, powerful program that I use is Logos, L-O-G-O-S, and it's got some really powerful language tools. The base of it is free, but to build on, you need some of the essentials and that costs a little bit of money, but uh, it's a good tool. What do you think about, so there's a kind of Bible that has the English and the Greek or the English and the Hebrew kind of side by side. They're called interlinears. Have you ever found those helpful? Only when I had to translate in class and I wasn't prepared. <laughs> okay, that's honesty in front of all of you right now. But uh, no, I guess I, I personally, because if you don't know Hebrew and Greek, yeah. you're really not going to, it, you're not going to make heads or tail out of the Greek or the Hebrew that you have before you on the opposite page. Sure. You got the sure. English and then you got the original language of the Bible. It's not going to do any good. I, I just would say, again, a good set of Bible commentaries, if you wish. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And if you can get them online, that's wonderful. And also a, 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 a decent translation mm-hmm. that has maybe some notes at the bottom. And yeah. I think there's the NIV study Bible a lot yeah. of people use. Yeah. I'm not saying it's perfect, but yeah. it can give you help. I think they've discontinued that one now. So we might have some in our library. You might be able to find some that were printed a while ago. But the ESV commentary... Okay, yeah, isn't the con- the Concordia Self Study Bible isn't printed anymore? Yeah, that's the one. I'm that's thinking the one you're of. thinking yeah, yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. that was yeah. an excellent one. Yeah, but no, now they have yeah. the NIV Study Bible. Okay. I think you can you still use yeah, that. Yeah, if one. you can find the Concordia, that's a really good that's one. A gr- that's I, a really I enjoy good that one. one. I still have one, and yep. I I see all my highlights in there and sure. notes, and that's a really good resource. Good, thank you. Um, okay, number two, let's go. Uh, the fact that Jesus is doesn't know everything. That's what this passage seems to say. And there's Mark chapter thirteen verse thirty two. About the hour or day, no one knows Jesus talking about the end times when when uh, the end of all things will come. Not the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. It seems as though the Father is complete, the Son is somehow incomplete, and so there's an inferiority or there's a gap between the two. Is that how we're supposed to understand this passage? Again, we go back to hermeneutics, understanding a Keep passage. Keep coming back to that word. Yep. Uh, understanding a passage or a question about a passage in light of what God taught on the same subject other places in scripture. And this is the idea that, remember, Jesus, when he came here, was true God, true man. Not 50-50, 100% man, 100% God. But he set aside, or that chose not to use, his humanity, um, and that's what we call that fancy, his humiliation. He humbled himself. There you go. So uh, here's a case where that he's speaking from his humanity side. He wouldn't know the end times. As the divine son of God, yeah, Yeah. he would. He would. So that's the idea that Jesus is speaking from his human side, just like he could have jumped off the cross too, yeah. as we yeah. often say. Yeah. You know, it wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was love for you and me yeah. because he could have jumped off at any time. Mm. So it's the idea when Jesus says, I'm not going to use my divine attributes, which I always have. That, that's what this is referring to, the fact that, yeah, from his human standpoint, no, he mm-hmm. didn't know. Mm-hmm the end times. But as God, he did. And that's yeah. all he's referring to. Yeah. Same way you think of some of the other attributes of God. God is present, fully present everywhere. Well, Jesus, while he's on earth, is, that's not true of him. He's present in a place and he has to travel to get to a different place. Um, God is all powerful. Jesus puts that on display through his miracles, but he doesn't. But not he, always. He, not always he and not, not fully. To. I mean, yeah. even when he feeds 5,000, it's not all of his power. He's bringing, he's bringing a sliver of that to bear on that situation. Any of his miracles, he's bringing a sliver of his power because he's capable of infinitely more than what he puts on display. Um, So I think that's helpful to be able to see, and really that is, let's look at the broader context of Jesus, not just this passage, but Jesus' life. He sets aside his, the use of his full divine attributes. Well, we just celebrated something that shows Jesus true God and true man with with the virgin birth, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, Jesus could have come down from heaven with chairs and da-da-da-da, I'm here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather, he comes, humbles himself, is born of a virgin, but born of a virgin by means of the Holy Spirit, you know, yeah, and yeah. then uh, as you see, then when he starts his ministry, you see both God and man displayed several times, but he often chooses to humble himself so that he can be our perfect substitute mm-hmm. and die on the cross. Awesome. That really, that's helpful, illuminating for that passage. And takes it away because Jehovah's Witnesses will use this passage to say, oh, look, Jesus is not the almighty God. He's not, not Yahweh God. Um, but to understand that Jesus introduces something new, that he is man-made flesh, um, both, both fully both at the same time. That's good. Helpful. Thank you. All right. Number one, I don't know if this is such a, like a mind bender or um, unexpected, but it is super challenging. There's Matthew 548, kind of in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And he says to his disciples, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is really a re- reiteration of something that God had said in Leviticus 19. Um, but this is like perfect. That's pretty high standard. 
especially in a, a culture that doesn't believe there's any truth for the most part, or truth is relative. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's no standard by which you get measured except for the one that you're comfortable with. Yeah. And that can change day by day. And that's why this passage is difficult for people. And yet uh, we, we do know that there, there's ultimately a standard. I think deep down a lot of people do. But one part is, is, remember, it reminds us once again that there's a perfect God who has a standard that I can't mm-hmm. reach, mm-hmm. that I fail. And when I'm yeah. really honest with myself, I realize I, I can't, I can't, he's not going to judge me by T and L, learning, you know, and trying. That, that's not going <laughs> to, not going to help. Or God doesn't yeah. go by a scale. Or I love when people mm-hmm. say, yeah, I think I've done enough good. You know, God does yeah. it on a scale. Yeah. Yeah. And it's always amazes me that they like always. some threshold. Yeah. Hey, but a D they, is but, passing. <laughs> but they always make it. Yeah. They yeah. always make it. Yeah. They can always name the people who won't, you know, <laughs> poor them. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least I'm better than, okay, what's your measurement? Mm-hmm. Or they think good is good enough. And remember, it's not. And, and what, what you realize when people say, well, I think I'm good enough, or in our culture, well, this is right for me. You always have to go back to the discussion that when people ask questions or make statements like that, that the underlying premise points to the need for a holy, perfect God who gives you mm-hmm. that standard. Because if someone says, well, you know, uh, I can't believe uh, they had a shooting at the mm-hmm. time of this mm-hmm time of this recording, there was a shooting in a church. Mm-hmm. Someone can say, I, I think that was just wrong. Well, yeah, but I, I, morally wrong. Okay. Well, if you say something is wrong, then something has to be right. Mm-hmm. If there's right and wrong, then there has to be some standard by which we measure things to be morally right and wrong. Mm-hmm. If there's some standard, there has to be some standard giver. Mm-hmm. And if there's some standard giver, then that has to be the ultimate standard of perfection itself, ultimate right, the perfection. But that's what people are trying to uh, deny today, that there's ultimately a standard giver. So if there's no standard giver, there's no standard. If there's no standard, there's no right. If there's no right, there's no wrong. And therefore, nothing is morally wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't work in our world at all. And it's not only not logical, it's just not truth. Mm -hmm. And and so when you talk about, hey, there's a standard by which you're going to have to measure something, people get nervous because they know I haven't met the standard. Mm-hmm. Jesus in this whole context is talking about, listen, unless your righteousness is better than that of the Pharisees, mm-hmm. you're not pretty a, you're, upright standing yeah, citizens. Yeah. And, and they, they were really good on the outside. Yeah. They ignored a lot of God's word when it wasn't convenient, mm-hmm. but they tried to look really good. And Jesus' whole point of that was, you can't earn your way to heaven. Mm-hmm. You can't be perfect because good isn't good enough. God demands perfection. And that's all the more reason you need to know that Jesus was perfect in your place. Mm-hmm. But that's really hard today because people don't think, you know, I don't know, is mediocrity the mm-hmm. new standard? Mm-hmm. Is it, well, it's good enough for me? That doesn't work with a holy, just God. Yeah. yeah, and I think Jesus later on in his ministry would say, you know, someone would say, good teacher, and ask the question. And Jesus begins with, why do you call me good? Right, really it goes to this question. None of us are perfect. Jesus alone is perfect. And so when Jesus lays out this standard, this expectation, each of us has to come to the conclusion, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I've not done that. Yeah, and, and, and if good is good enough and you don't have to be perfect, then Jesus died on the cross for nothing. nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Good. Man, that's been really helpful, John. Thanks for walking us through those 10 passages. Uh, again, we'll be revisiting this issue, I think, because there's not just 10 difficult passages in the New Testament, and we didn't even touch the Old Testament. Uh, so if you have thoughts or comments, you want us to talk about a passage on a future uh, podcast, please uh, comment in our social media or send us an email, info at whenfearreigns.com. Uh, we'd love to hear that. Thanks for tuning in today. It's been great to have you join us. Uh, these are certainly tough sayings written down for us in the Bible. Uh, But I hope our conversation has helped you, uh, helped you especially to make room in your life for the fear of God to reign in the new year. 
Thanks for listening to this special two-part episode of When Fear Reigns. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We'll see you next time.